Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A content warning accompanies this podcast. Discussions include sexual violence, abuse, amongst others. And if you feel affected by any of these subjects, then please be aware. Welcome to Podcart's Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. My name is Helena Rafai. Occasionally, we bring in special guests to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their lives so far. For rights reasons, music might be shorter than the original song. Podcart's Life is Like a Box of Records is recorded, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai. Original music is by Susan Bear, aka Good Dog. This week's guest is Miles Bonner. Miles is an award-winning journalist. He's recognised for his work with BBC Scotland, Panorama and BBC Disclosure. His investigative work and broadcasting has led to widespread coverage, acclaim, and more notably, the criminal conviction of Adnan Ahmed, who was a subject of seduction boot camp where Miles spent time undercover with so-called pickup coaches. He has most recently presented and produced the Unlocked podcast, which unearths stories from lockdown life. Miles, welcome to Podcart and welcome to Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you. How are you? I'm, I'm yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's, things are all kind of, everything's been turned upside down at the moment, but I'm doing all right. Yeah. How are you? Brilliant. Yeah, not bad, not bad. It's um, it's introduced a lot of uh, new ways of working and lots of uh, DIY tech uh, skills and I've I've certainly increased my my knowledge I have to say <laughs> so um, I'm not I'm not sure if that's been the same for you if you had to kind of look at things in a different way of approach and, and journalism y- yeah I, I support uh, things have moved um, almost completely remote um, I, I must admit I, I still go into the the BBC when it's you know essential um, to, to go in but you know it's the, the building's very quiet and they're doing things you know, it's, it's, everything's kind of in place. It's very safe in there. Um, but most of the time I am just working from home. And so far, everything from a technology point of view has been working, which I'm completely shocked by. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been fine. So I, I guess what I want to start off is for people that don't know who you are, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, well, um, I suppose I am a kind of journalist stroke producer at the at the BBC. I started working in in radio in early 2014 and moved into kind of news and journalism shortly after that and and now I make I've got the pleasure of making kind of documentaries for the BBC and also making podcasts and I kind of find myself in between um, working on kind of digital platforms and um, kind of normal uh, news so it's um it's a good position to be in and I'm 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 very thankful for it and I've you know had the opportunity to go undercover on a seduction boot camp for pickup artists which was eye opening and um since then I've I've had other opportunities come off the back of it you know it was a real a, a real big step for me getting to work with with Panorama on that and and things so far have been you know been very good so yeah that's a bit about me yeah and I want to talk about seduction game kind of of later on and a game and and so on which was uh, profoundly shocking but you did a phenomenal thing in exposing it um I so for the premise of, of people that, that don't know about the podcast, we get people to pick tracks of soundtracks uh, their life so far. Um, you've picked, there's some really euphoric songs in here, which is amazing as well. Um, so I kind of want to just kick off and, and uh, I mean, it's so, your intro song is without a doubt one of the probably most uplifting uh, and it's ABBA, Knowing Me, Knowing You. So why did you pick this? 
Yeah, well, for me, this this song it, it, it really reminds me of my 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 grandparents. You know, so they're they're penned up in their house in Crossgates and Fife at the moment, and you know, this time's really hitting them hard. And this is like one of my earliest memories of you know music in my life, getting ready to go to to Disney with my grandparents when I was five, um, and. This was playing in the background. They had Abba Gold on VHS, and I just remember kind of getting <laughs> dressed at five in the morning, ready for a you know I think it was my first flight, and just so excited. And this song, it just it catapults me back there every time I hear it. They're going through a real, you know, difficult time just having to stay in constantly because, you know, they're um, because of their age, you know, they're very healthy and they go out a lot and they're not used to being kind of penned up like this. So, yeah, my, that's my my earliest song that I can think of. And what are some of the other musical memories you have as a child at that age? Yeah, well, <laughs> some of them probably are quite uh yeah, like Doctor Hook. <laughs> there was a lot of Doctor <laughs> Hook. Um, I'm trying to think of others at the top of my head. I just like that. That reminds me a lot of being in like my granddad's car. You know, um, <laughs> so, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. You know, the top of my head, other other tracks. There, there's tons of tons of ABBA. I, I can't believe how much ABBA there was, and um, a lot of Roy Orbison as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'd say that's that, that's the kind of earliest part. So did you grow up in Fife? No. So I've I had a kind of uh, my upbringing is a bit all over the place. So I I was born in Inverness. Yeah, I, I grew up in Tain uh, until I was about seven, which is like about an hour north of Inverness. And then uh, I moved to Indonesia um, wow. at that age and lived there for a year and a half um, because of my, my, my dad's job at the time. And then I moved uh, back to Tain and then I moved to Abu Dhabi for a year and a half in the United Arab Emirates. And then I moved to Inverness and that's where I kind of class. That's my, you know, my home. That's where all my closest friends are from and then I moved to Brazil for two and a half years lived in uh, Rio de Janeiro because of my dad's work and came back to Scotland to go to university in Sterling and uh, and but you know Inverness has always always been my home my whole family are from Fife I'm the only mm -hmm. one that was born at Rigmore Hospital in Inverness but uh, <laughs> that is definitely my home but yeah it's not it's very hard to pin my accent sometimes because it's just a bit all over the place. <laughs> what was it like um, for you going between all of those different countries? Did you did you feel resentful that you were having to kind of keep moving around, or were you just you just it was about you know being with your your family and so on? Yeah, I think that the early moves, you know, Indonesia and, and Abu Dhabi. I was I was young enough then that it wasn't really much of an upheaval to, to my life to be moving like that and, and I would say I kind of just went with it and, and uh, you know it was great. Moving to Brazil was a trickier time because I think I was just you know shortly after I was 14 and that's when you really have your kind of you know your closest friends and you know your kind of friends yeah. for life well that's how I find it anyway so that was really tricky you know moving away um, at that time and basically just keeping in touch with people over MSN uh, and you know, I, I, amazingly, I've managed to keep those friendships even being away for that amount of time. So, for example, my best friend, you know, um, well, my, you know, two best friends from Inverness, I live with one of them now in Glasgow, still live together. Um, wow. And my other, you know, other pal lives in, uh, he's in Annie's land, so he's really close as well. So after having that much kind of upheaval at, at that age, it's it hasn't really caused me an issue. If anything, it helped me, you know, if you can adjust to those kind of big moves, then I suppose it helps you in some way. 
Moving on to your next pick, um, introduce that for us and, and please explain why why you picked this. Yeah, so this track is uh, Pixies, Where Is My Mind? Um, you know, in, t- in terms of films that have had a massive impact on me, this was the, the final track, you know, the last tune at the end of Fight Club, which just like blew my mind. I just loved that film. And uh, that film kind of led me down you know, a rabbit hole in terms of the types of TV shows and films that I love, you know, David Fincher films and TV shows like, you know, House of Cards and Seven and Mindhunter. I just, I just love them. And it also led me to kind of find a a, a long interview with uh, Chuck Polinick, who who had this amazing interview on the uh, Joe Rogan podcast about how his creative process. And it was almost like when I heard that, uh, I was, I have been, you know, I was working in the media at the time, but that com- that interview just blew my mind. Him, the way he talks about creativity and how he knows that he is getting to a, a, a good point in his writing on the things that he creates when people react to it negatively or have a negative reaction to it. Like he was kicked out of numerous writing rooms because the things he was writing were shocking people. I just thought that's an amazing way of thinking, you know, that when you get a negative reaction or a lot of feedback, which isn't always positive, then maybe you're actually pushing the boundaries of of what you're doing and creating something new. So that song kind of has intertwined into like loving that movie and the types of programs that I like and even getting to hear that interview and being tied to Chuck Polinick, who actually wrote the book, uh, Fight Club. Yeah, that song's really important to me. I want to kind of go back a bit uh, back to your, your teenage years and um, I, I guess what I want to know is, is your exposure to the the media at that age and, and music and, and film and so on. Were there any years during that time that you kind of really instilled a love for the media and creativity? Yeah, I, I, a big part of um, my teenage years was I was really into kind of emo and screamo and and uh, <laughs> like kind of I, I, I loved it. Uh, Taking Back Sunday and Census Fail and Slipknot, you know, and and I think that was a really creative time in music. I, I, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm, I'm a bit older and I don't see it as much, but I just remember there was just something unbelievable, like so cool about buying albums and music videos coming out then. It was so creative, like you'd go through the entire booklet of this CD that had been imported Um imported into you know an HMV in Inverness and it just everything the artwork and the lyrics and just everything about listening and consuming music back then I loved it and I suppose that was kind of that that new metal emo phase where I was buying albums so much and so yeah I think that was kind of I don't know if that's the direct source of really being interested in 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 the media and, and creative industries, but that was definitely the time where, you know, I started, you know, I was in a, a band at that age um, called Curio, you know, we got to support Enter Shikari and wow. it was all these things, you know, we supported Enter Shikari in this, uh, it was called Downtown USA, it was like a kind of rundown, uh, like youth hall <laughs> in Inverness <laughs> and we supported them in there and there must have been, I don't know, 300 people, it was like us, Flood of Red and and Enter Shikari in this kind of almost barn-like uh, building. And, uh, yeah, there was just, it was like feeling like you're really at the beginning of something because, you know, they went on to be huge and, and we were all just obsessed with those types of records at the time. So I, I think that has maybe a lot to do, do with it, you know, getting into music and, and really starting to get creative. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And some of the, the, the countries that you've mentioned that you moved to, um, Indonesia and um, Brazil and, and also um, Abu Dhabi and so on, uh, were you exposed to any uh, musical culture differences and, and anything that, that stood out for you and made you kind of think about things a bit differently? Uh, yeah, I think not so much in Abu Dhabi and, and Indonesia, but I was off the age when I lived in, in Brazil that I was um, consuming Brazilian rock music. So there was a band called Detonautas and then there was Charlie Brown Jr. They were the two ones that I can kind of remember. I think Peachy, was it Peachy was the other one? And they were kind of like new metal rock rap um, artists in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, yeah, I remember buying their albums and they were all in all in Portuguese. <laughs> um, but I, I think I was taking a, still taking a lot of music from from back home. I, I know a, a family friend's um, daughter, they, her, her boyfriend had come over to, to Brazil for a few days. They were living over there as well. And he uh, had given me Deftones, Adrenaline. Oh, wow. And that was just like, just blew my mind. I just absolutely loved it. And I became obsessed with Deftones after that. And I also... Um, you know, it's a bit of a strange mix, but I also got the remote part by Ida Wild back then. Yeah. And similarly, I just absolutely loved those records. And in near the end of um, my time in Brazil, I did come back to Inverness for a short period of time to see friends and then go back. And I came back with um, Funeral for a Friend's first album, mm-hmm. uh, which I can't remember what it was called, but it had like two people back to back with like a kind of. It was like quite an arty front cover and I just listened to that album on repeat. So every little snippet that I would get from from what people were listening to back home, I would just become obsessed with. When you went to, to Stirling University, how did things kind of alter for you and, and did they uh, change significantly to, to previous years? Did you, did you alter as a person or was it just basically a kind of continuation and you were on the path that you knew where you wanted to go? Uh, yeah, actually, it was it was quite a big um, moment. Actually, I tried to get into art school. Um, I tried to get into Glasgow School of Art, and I, you know, I, I had a an interview stage, and then and then there's a kind of final stage where I think you, you submit a portfolio, and I didn't get in, and I was gutted about it because that's all I wanted to do. And I remember my my dad took me to Stirling University because I'd I'd always been into history. Like my my granddad's a massive. He just consumes history books like they're, you know, just, you know, just consumes them like they're novels. So mm-hmm. I um, went there. It was something that I hadn't really thought about doing and went to Stirling Uni and I just really just loved studying there. Um, I really got into history and I think that's when I started to realise that I was wanted to be a journalist because that kind of finding primary and secondary sources to build an argument and let the kind of the reader decide what they think happened um, is such a big part of history and you know when you actually apply it to what journalism's like it fits quite well so um, I started to realize then that I'd want to do journalism after that and that strangely kind of led to um, a, a kind of another after I finished University of Stirling, I knew I wanted to do journalism and I got into the University of Chester to do a master's in journalism. So I got ready to move to the northwest of England, um, moved and the course got cancelled. And oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so I moved to Manchester. I tried to get into Salford University to do their journalism course and I didn't get in. I failed the entrance <laughs> exam and I was stuck in Manchester with kind of no reason to be there. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting into recruitment and that was my career. I was I was a recruitment consultant. Uh, How was that? Uh, yeah, I met great people, but it, it was not the job for me. I, I kind of, you know, it's, it's, I'm lucky that I've, I have a job, which, I, you know, I, I love doing and I look forward to going into work, but I did... Um, you know, I suppose after being there for three years, or whatever, I did start to feel like 
I was penned in and kind of pigeonholed and I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I only left that job um, when I applied for work experience at BBC Radio Scotland to work on the phone-ins, which was, I think it was called Morning Call back then. And I applied to do phone-in shifts and I got a week work experience and I I decided, I'd, you know, I wasn't able to, I was still working at the time, so I took a week's holiday from my recruitment job because at this point I'd managed to get a move from Manchester's recruitment office to Glasgow's recruitment office, so I was able mm -hmm. to work at Radio Scotland. I did the week, I got offered three weeks off the back of it and I quit my job. Wow. Um, and, and And that's kind of, I've stayed working at the BBC since, but yeah, that was quite a big, a big change in, in my life at the time. Before I move on to the next stage of your career, I want to talk about your next song, which is uh, Naked and Famous. And this is such a brilliant, almost kind of summer song, but you might have uh, different memories. So why did you pick this? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's kind of happy and sad, the reasons for this track. Um, my time at Stirling University, I met like friends for life. And uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Bobby Hetherington, we all called him Momo. Um, I met I met him at university, and we were friends for like you know the the, the four years that we were there. And uh, he he tragically was killed in Afghanistan in, in twenty thirteen. He went he went and joined um, the army, and he yeah he was killed and. So that was on the 30th of April in 2013. And so that was, you know, seven years on Thursday just passed. Mm -hmm. And this song, he was absolutely obsessed with it. And I liked the song, um, but, you know, he absolutely loved it. And now when I hear it, it's just like, it's, it's actually just, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a happy feeling when I hear it. when we were at university together and you know he was just like just larger than life guy so happy and just you know everyone loved him and then when I hear that song now it does make me feel you know it's like happy and sad mixed and it's I just I just I love it now you know I listen, I listen to it you know when I'm stressed or when I'm on a flight or whatever and uh, yeah it's, a, it's an important one. What uh, impact did his death have on yourself and, and the group of friends that, that were around you? Yeah it was it was it was yeah really difficult you know um, it, it, we just couldn't we just really couldn't believe it you know he always talked about going uh, going away um, and wanting to, to to join the forces, and you know, I don't think anyone was really keen for him to do that. But that is what he wanted to do, mm -hmm. and it was very early on. You know, a, a lot of it becomes quite hazy. I don't know if you're, you know, your mind just switches off parts of it, and you can't remember little details. But I do remember it was being it was quite early into him going out there, and uh, it was just a massive, massive shock. Um, you know, I can only I can only really remember slight details of the day of of being told. I got phoned by one of my friends from university to to let me know, and um, yeah, it's just it's just I, I don't know. I think your brain just kind of switches off aspects of it. But um, you know, at the time, another one of my close friends, uh, Paul Tracy, who went to uni university with the, with um, Momo and myself, he lived quite near to me. So we like we went to like Sweeney's on the park, you know, in Glasgow, and just had pints and talked about you know old times and stuff like that. So we managed, I think, we managed to um, process it all because you know we were still in contact. You know, everyone that was friends, at, at, you know, with Momo were able to talk and and really kind of deal with it. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. deal with it's maybe not the right word but you know what i mean we were maybe able to to get through it but yeah it was a it was a an absolute shocker and it still is um mm-hmm. but yeah this song is kind of it's all the kind of good things you know that all the good things that he brought that has kind of rolled up into that one tune yeah going back to to your your career and um as it's progressed you've obviously said that you've moved back to glasgow you've you've got three weeks more on the back of the the one week of experience that you did um how did things then progress for you into coming becoming more of your your own person as a journalist yeah well i i, I think I, I really learned loads from working in in phone-ins i think from from joining the BBC at that time, there was just so much going on politically in Scotland and in the UK. So, you know, from joining at the start of, you know, a few months into 2014, if you just think about all the events that had happened, um, from that moment on, it was a real kind of, it really tested, tested your, um, I suppose, your work ethic and, and, trying to find you know, kind of what stories really matter to people in Scotland. And I think th- those years with, you know, referendums and general elections and all those other things and having to work in phone-ins and in news and and then eventually moving to work in social media for the social, I, I managed to learn quite a lot of different things from different parts of the BBC. So I got to kind of learn the radio side of things and then the news side of things from the newsroom and then how digital stories can be told. Uh, so I think um, being able to kind of move around and try different jobs really helped me. I do want to talk um, a bit about uh, the seduction game and, and so on. But before that, I, I want to talk about your, your next song, which is uh, John Hopkins, who has just his rise. It's meteoric over the last couple of years and he's produced some of the best music, uh, you know, in in my generation, I would say. Why did you pick this song in particular? Yeah, well, th- th- this song it actually is the kind of soundtrack to those big changes in, in life. This is actually when I kind of moved from recruitment to the BBC and then moving into a flat. You know, I moved into a flat, which I'm still in now. At the time, there were seven of us in it. And <laughs> everyone in that flat had kind of, had all been, it was a very exciting time for all of us. You know, I I live with um, professional cyclists, um, Danny McCaskill, Duncan Shaw, Ali Clarkson, and um, at the time, I lived with a skate park uh, designer, John Bailey, um, and a video editor at Cut Media that made Danny McCaskill's films, Paul. And, um, you know, through that period, we also had other folks staying with us. You know, um, we had uh, a friend from Manchester called Ricky, and we, we basically just had this flat just crammed full of people who were all kind of doing exciting things at the time and that tune came out I remember I heard it driving on Zane Lowe's Radio 1 show Mm -hmm. I think it was back then and it just became like the song of summer you know having kind of barbecues and going on the balcony all the time and just having a great time all happening when I was making big changes with my kind of line of work and things as well so yeah it really sticks with me that tune and I listen to it you know still now to this day I'll put it on if I'm in the gym or going for a walk or whatever it still gets played. You've done incredibly well you're an award winner now um, based on on some of the work that you've done and um, the so the seduction game and your work with Panorama um, and exposing people like as he was called a game 
Adnan Ahmed. When did you first become aware of this and um, why did you decide to to go ahead and expose what was happening? Uh, well, I first came aware of, uh, became aware of it when there was a phone call into to Radio Scotland. So um, someone had phoned in to, to the, I think it was... I can't remember what the radio show was. It was well, it was the Key Adams program. It was called then. Someone had phoned in and said that there was a person that they go to college with who has this YouTube channel which they were concerned about. So, um, I actually I got past uh, this call um, from um, my my girlfriend who actually works in in uh, in radio. She you know said this is something that you should you should maybe have a, a, a listen to. And when I'd find this YouTube channel, I um, realized that, you know, there was there was a lot, of, a lot of stuff on there that needed looked into. And that would have been in October 2018. And mm-hmm. from that point on, I, I'd been in communication with um, Adnan Ahmed, uh, ADA Game, trying to get an interview with him to, to ask him why he had this um dating and lifestyle coaching website as it was known and um there were things on there that i wanted to ask him about you know um apparent uh, recordings which seemed to be you know of an intimate nature that i um wanted to, to find out why they were posted and just really put questions to him i never got that interview but um i managed to to get a response from youtube who had kind of realized that these videos had were breaking their uh, community guidelines because of the the sexual nature of them, and they started deleting videos. And then that's when I knew there was a, a story there, mm-hmm. and that we were we were going to run a, a video about about this this person and what we'd found. That video was published on I think it was January 9th, nineteen, and he was arrested two days later from what was on there um well actually no it, it was from what was in that video had sparked um a reaction online i think a lot of yeah. people were angered by it some people had recognized uh, this behavior in the person and others had decided to come forward to the police and report what had happened to them and then there was an arrest and then a court case and things just kind of um you know it just rolled rolled and rolled and rolled and became a much bigger story um, thanks to, you know, those people that were coming forward and speaking about what happened to them. I remember the initial video that went up and um, I'd then gone on to YouTube. I think some of the videos were still up and um, couldn't believe what I was seeing. It, it, it did make me, you know, me and others physically sick, I think, um, what yeah. was happening. And um when you're within this and, and you're investigating this, and I know that when you were uh, speaking to various, well, I hate even calling them pickup artists, but when they're these people that are committing these things on the streets and, and blatantly denying and, and you can see that you're visibly becoming a bit more angered by it um, and challenging them. But when you're investigating this and, and you're, you're hearing the stories from those affected and um, the victims, how do you keep yourself in check both mentally and I guess, you know, just to, to keep within a, a, a journalist uh, frame of mind without it, I suppose, affecting you too much? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, to be honest. I think um, I think you constantly need to check in with, you know, others. I think what really helped during the kind of bigger investigation for Disclosure and Panorama was... Um, having like really great people around you that you could bounce ideas off them and kind of repeat back things that that you'd seen because um, you're right you, you, you become desensitized at some points because you've been having to consume so much of this stuff that sometimes you're like you know is, is that is that as wrong as I think it is is mm-hmm. that a story is that you know but you've obviously been consuming so much of this stuff that you it, it kind of it brings the the bar higher as to what you think wrongdoing and you need to constantly keep checking in to make sure you know am I on the right I'm on the right road here 
Um, so I, that is a, a big part of it. And I think that helped me a lot, being able to just kind of run things that I'd found by people to say, you know, are you finding this as troubling as I am? Or is there something here that I'm missing? And then in terms of kind of not letting it impact you mentally, like luckily, luckily I've not had any kind of troubles with that yet where I've, you know, I've, I've it's, it's made me feel, uh, it's really impacted me mentally and I've, I've, I've felt like I can't watch or consume any more of this stuff. I think mm-hmm. I've, at that point when you're working on it, I would say I'm just, you're so busy that you, you just keep going until you, you have a film or you have a, a story and, and that kind of stops you from thinking about things too much. And it's only after you deliver it that you can start to go, right, well, you know, this was a really tricky situation or that was really disturbing. And, and all those things that you've experienced, you can, you know, have a think about retrospectively. But at the time, you're just so busy. I, I don't think it has enough time to impact you. Yeah. mentally but there is a lot of checking in to say you know I've found this and you know am I, am I on the right path here because mm-hmm. you can become really um desensitized you know you know you know how wrong it is but you don't know you know even things like what what should you include in a film and I think you you, you may be th- there's things that you forget that, you know, an, an audience watching at half past eight on BBC One, they would find that really offensive. But you've been watching so much of it that you maybe think, oh, no, yeah. that should go in the film because it's really important that it's in there. But you're you're obviously speaking from a point of view where you've seen all those other videos and you have a bit of context for it. But you've got to really be careful when you're making that film for an audience who are coming at it cold that you don't put in something there that is just just too far it just it's mm-hmm. it's gone too far and depressingly we had to omit um and and rightfully so a lot of stuff that was you know um you know too too um offensive or um yeah it, w- it wouldn't make a film at that time of night um so that just shows you the kind of uh, the depths that some of these these men will go that you mm-hmm. know you can't even show it on an investigative program because of how um, offensive it is. Did you, um, were you ever worried at any stage about your own personal safety? Um, during un- being undercover? Um, yeah, yeah. I I, th- I think it's actually a similar feeling to, to, to before. It's kind of like you're just so caught up in it that you you, you forget. Like I know in the, in the mornings before going in to do it, you would feel really sick and nervous yeah, about it, you know, having hardly slept and just worrying about it. But once you're actually in um, in the thick of it and, you know, the day starts just going on as normal and, and no one suspects you to be anyone, anyone else, then you forget and you just kind of get on with it. Um, so, and, and it all just kind of, it happens so quickly. The day... There were long days. There were very long days, but you know, before you know it, the weekend's over and you're you're out of there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't have too too many worries about my safety. And also, I, I must admit as well that this is, um, you know, this was was dealing with so called seduction coaches. You know, there's people that go undercover with you know <laughs> drug dealers and yeah. gangs and and things like that. You know, just unbelievable unbelievably brave um like I suppose undercover jobs that journalists have done so I suppose that you know I always knew if, if things had gone wrong and they'd realized I was someone else then I, I would probably probably got out okay it would have just been very awkward and um there's always you know being uh, a BBC uh, operation there's so many checks and and so much planning and risk assessment that goes into this that every scenario has been thought through to make it as safe as possible so you really do feel like you've got options if something was to go wrong we are going to move on to your your next pick uh which is grimes and um 
tell us about this and why it's so significant for you? Yeah, well, this is a you know quite a, a similar time to um, Open Eye Signal. Um, I I met my my current girlfriend at this time, and also um, it was a song that you know I, I I'd been sent uh, the tune by I think it was my, my sister at the time, and I just absolutely loved it. You know, I I just thought it was so. It's just, it's really relaxing. It's like a really relaxing tune. I don't know if other people get that impression from it. But I listened to this a lot to kind of chill me out, and I would, I have like this this playlist that um, almost all the tracks in it don't have any vocals. It's like the sort of music I put on when I'm writing or I'm trying to relax. But this song's always on there. Um, I think it's because her voice just kind of intertwines with the music. It doesn't sound, you know, you know, you know, when you're trying to like concentrate and write, mm-hmm. um, someone someone's lyrics or really strong vocals can can kind of stop you from concentrating but her voice just seems to run almost like an instrument through it um so this song you know one it was kind of a, a really great tip from my sister um it it underpins like a, a a big moment in my life you know it was same kind of time as these career changes and uh, meeting my girlfriend and having that great summer and also it's just a song that I kind of turn to a lot of the time when I'm trying to unwind or, or concentrate. Speaking of uh, more kind of instrumental music and Mogwai, one of uh, our finest exports. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> I mean, they're a huge band for so many people um, and you and I share a lot of the same kind of circles. Yeah. So why did you pick uh, Tracy out of the, the you know mammoth back catalogue that the band have? Yeah, I, I just so there's a few reasons I, I I just love this song and it's just so important. As um I, I had the chance to to work with Paul Savage in uh, twenty fifteen. Uh, I was in a, a band at the time and we got to record at uh, Chem nineteen, Chemical Underground's um studios and we met Paul, he you know produced a few of the songs we went in to to record you know I'm no longer in a band but back then I was and I got to meet him and he's just such a you know down-to-earth cool guy and um, I just remember Young Team was on the wall (laughs) in Chemical Underground and I was just like I I think that I, I was always I would always listen to Come On Die Young that was this album that I would always go to and I think when we went to this this that studio and seen the place where it was recorded and just like hear a little bit more about how that track was made from Paul I just thought you know I'm going to go back to that album and and you know listen to it again And then since then, I, I honestly, I, I, I think I've got some sort of obsessive, um, compulsive. Uh, <laughs> it's just I have, I have to listen to this song. Like my friends, family, 
you know, my girlfriend, I must listen to this song every single day. It's not wow. not, not even a joke. I, I I put it on all the time and I just love it. You know, I love the, the call to the, the manager at the end and, you know, all those little bits of kind of just little snippets that they've kind of put over the instrumental track. And it's just so, uh, it's like a really peaceful song. I love it. I listen to it every single day. Um, having kind of met and, and and knowing the person that produced it, as well as just loving Mogwai, um, I just love this song. And so much so in my last uh, documentary, A Question of Consent, uh, which I yeah. made with uh, Disclosure, we managed to get that song in the film. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time working on the the soundtrack for that film. Um, you know, I, I, re- I really think music is extremely important when telling kind of stories, especially in like a, a film format. And and living with um, Danny McCaskill, you know, he spends so much time looking at music before he makes um, his videos. And it's kind of rubbed off on me, you know, really think about what songs fit with different emotions and what you know what songs fit with different parts of a story you're trying to tell and mm-hmm. I just was delighted to be able to get Mogwai Tracy into that film as the very end tune when you're kind of summing up in a piece of camera about what you found throughout the whole investigation and uh, yeah I just love it I love it Speaking of a question of consent, I mean, uh, comparatively with obviously the seduction game and the um, tie-in, I guess, of of women and how much they're abused and victimised and and just the focus on treating them in a way that is is just abhorrent. But um, there's a there's obviously a tie-in. But with a question of consent, you were looking into the the rise of rough sex. Um, as they call it, yeah. what was the experience like making that? And w- were there times that you were really shocked with some of the stuff that you were being exposed to? Yeah, I, th- I think um, I think the most shocked I was in making this film. I mean, this was a very different film from from the Seduction Game because there was less of a. I suppose that with the seduction game, there's a focus. You know who the people are that you're looking into and there's a, a an end goal as to what you want to, to get and then put to them to, to mm-hmm. get, have them respond. With this, it was a lot more kind of nuanced and we were just trying to see, I suppose, look at society and all the different things that maybe feed into this uh, normalisation of um, rough sex or you know so-called rough sex that is not, you know, not consented to. And... There was, you know, because of that, we were very much just kind of, you know, learning each day from our interviews about what the film was going to be and just learning as we went, you know, it took shape over the kind of months that we worked on it. You know, it was, you know, it wasn't even that long. I think it was two, two and a half months or something. And um, there weren't as many, depressingly, there wasn't as many shocking moments. There was a lot of things that I thought, um I thought beforehand was the case, you know, I suppose the influence of free um, online porn and how it could be uh, misinterpreted or misunderstood by, you know, younger viewers. I I thought that would be the case. And it was something that fed into this film from an early part, you know, the early research we'd done into the film, we did think that had a a big tie into this. So that wasn't a surprise. But going through the the case of Chloe Misek was was quite shocking. you know, I think maybe to most very shocking, but seeing how someone, um, someone who has been killed, um, yeah. how how their lives are kind of just put completely, just com- put completely out in the open in a courtroom and being unable to defend yourself, and in the case of Chloe Misek, um, it was very much clear from what we'd read and what we'd presented in the film that there was a lot of time spent on um you know essentially implicating some of her actions by saying you know she was going out a lot she was drinking a lot she was doing this that and the other in a court case which was about um unconsensual choking which resulted Mm -hmm. in someone losing their life and I think just seeing that in black and white was quite a it made you stop and think um, so there wasn't as many moments 
where you're like, you know, this is extremely shocking content we're seeing, like, you know, what we were finding on YouTube and elsewhere for the seduction game. But going through that story with um, Chloe Mysick's parents was the, the, the most difficult thing to do. And um, thankfully, they felt, you know, comfortable enough to speak, speak to us. And, you know, it was extremely brave of them to do so. But it was it was troubling hearing them talk through what it was like to find out that news. Um, you know, it's just completely broken them. And it was it, it was important that we told that story, but it was very difficult to hear. Do you, I mean, obviously that case also echoed, um, it, it was echoed recently by the British backpacker, Grace Mullane, who's, it was a kind of similar uh, thing that had happened. Um, and it's just, I, I don't think it ever becomes less shocking when you, you hear about these things. And these these women are not able, or these people are not able to defend themselves, as you say. Do you feel almost a kind of sense of duty that to provide something like that for them, that you're you're kind of continuing their legacy almost and providing something for their families that shows that they shouldn't have died in the ways that, that they, they passed? Yeah, I think it, it, it's really important that there is a, there's something that comes out of, of all of this that's, you know, in some way positive. And it's hard to tell now because it's not been that long since those films were out, but maybe um, it could change things. You know, having telling those stories and having um, what happened to, cer- to certain people, have all those facts laid out for the audience to kind of make a, make a judgment on and make their own mind up, that might change things terms of legislation um, in terms of the pickup artist film we know that youtube ended up deleting hundreds of videos and closing down channels that had been there for years um so i think it is yeah i think that is a motivator is is telling people's stories but also that there might be something that comes off the back of it which makes mm-hmm. the chance of this thing happening again a little bit less likely mm-hmm. um so i would say that is yeah it is sharing those stories that maybe haven't been told or haven't been given as much attention as, as maybe they should have done and the potential of a change. Another sonically powerful uh, band and, and your last pick already, these these podcasts seems to go so quickly, The Twilight Sads, which um, is a, a band that connects so many of us now. Why is this song so special for you? Yeah, well, I, I think, I, you know, I was so looking forward to seeing them in the barras again. and I was could not wait for it you know the 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 last time I'd seen them in there um it was just so emotional um were you were you at that gig I was and I sobbed like you I was just standing there crying for the whole thing oh it was just amazing wasn't it yeah Um, and I, I I was so looking forward to it and I just thought this would be a good a song to kind of have last on the list because it's quite representative of the time we're in just now. You know, we don't know when we'll be able to go to gigs again. Um, we don't know when we're going to experience, you know, live events like that. Um, you know, it's, it's going to happen, surely, hopefully. But mm-hmm. within this kind of unknown at the moment, and this song just stands out, you know, seeing it at that gig as well as listening, this is one of my songs that I listen to like constantly. And yeah, I think it's quite a good one for the time that we're in right now. sad song but it's also I find it really uplifting and there was just so much tied into it you know 
th- thinking about seeing them at the Barras, being excited about, you know, seeing them before the gig got cancelled recently. And I'm also a big Frightened Rabbit fan. Um, and I think every time you go and see Twilight Sad, you know, especially if they, they, they cover a Frightened Rabbit tune, yeah. um, you know, there's a, a real connection there. And yeah, I just find watching Twilight Sad and, and listening to their albums is a complete mix of emotions. And that's why I love and, I, and that track particularly, I, I just love it. Before we go, I want to talk about a couple of uh, the last couple of things. So you're working on this podcast series, Unlocked. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so that this um, this podcast is is aimed for. I suppose it's like the stories that haven't been getting, you know, rightfully so that the news and government briefings have to focus on the the daily updates with this pandemic and how we keep each other safe and and all these other things. And that is, there's there's a reason why that is the top of the priority list for news. But I do think there's kind of a lot of aspects of life which would normally, which would normally be a huge thing like, you know, going to university or going to your first festival or just looking, you know, going to the pub with your friends at the weekend or, having anxiety or struggling with depression, these things are normally huge issues, which would be at the forefront of of the stories that we would tell and, and discuss. But things have just been put on the back burner and given um, less prominence on our priority list when it comes to reporting. This podcast will hopefully give a bit of breathing space to those issues and let particularly a younger audience talk about these things and give time to those worries and the the impact of this pandemic on them and we'll be wanting to cover stories every week which we feel haven't been told elsewhere so the first episode went live um yesterday morning and uh, it's probably why you're hearing my my voice breaking every now and it's been a <laughs> few days um, but the first episode went live yesterday morning and uh, within that episode we speak to uh a sex worker who is currently breaking lockdown to to make ends meet, as well as speaking to Leslie Strang from Belladrum Festival and Jonathan Dawson from SWG3 about the future of music and how festivals and gigs may change when they open up. And um, yeah, it was just it's, it's a we're hoping this will be a great platform for younger um, adults in Scotland to start you know speaking out about the things that are really impacting them. So. Yeah, it's been it's been a, a, a crazy first week, and we're hoping that uh, people can get in touch with stories and and we can give some time to them. I want to end on a a, pos- a real positive and the fact that uh, you're a gold winner. You you won an area that must have been unbelievable. Did you expect that you were going to win that first of all? I mean, obviously a lot of people say no, but um, they secretly think, yeah, maybe I've got an edge in here. But also how did it feel to to win? I So I'm speaking completely honestly. I had no clue I was going to win it. I had no idea. I've really felt as if um, Radio 4 were going to win it. Um, I think I was up against the anatomy of a stabbing um, as well as a, a Radio Manchester uh, podcast, which was covering, I think it was the the police on the beat in the city, yeah. which was another amazing podcast, um, you know, in comparison to the Radio 4 one. And so I, I did feel like, you know, it was a great, great to be nominated and a great trip to London. You know, I'd, I'd never been to an awards event. That's the first one, first and last <laughs> award <laughs> event I've been to. And uh, yeah, I was just glad to be there. So when I got announced, I just couldn't believe it, and and uh, it's probably a, <laughs> it's probably a good way of describing how I, I handled it uh, because I went up and I spoke for about six seconds. I just <laughs> I was just like thank you very much, you know, tried to get up the stage as quick as possible, and then I walked off the wrong bit as well. <laughs> I walked like down the stairs back to my seat when I'm supposed to go through the back. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know how to handle it, and I think that is evidence of <laughs> not being surprised to have won it. Uh, but it felt amazing and um you know obviously people you know you don't do these things for for awards but it yeah. does feel good when you when you get them and you think oh you know maybe you know uh, I suppose it just gives the, the things that you've done a little bit of a you know just a nice little line under it to say well that was you know perhaps a good thing 
Um, so yeah, I was I was delighted, and I still am. You know, I still can't believe it. Well, we've come to the end um, already. I really appreciate you speaking to me. It's it's fascinating the work that you're doing, and it's important journalism as well. So, and I know how busy you are. So, I'm I am very grateful, and I wish you all the best going forward. Th- thank you very much. It's been it's been great to speak to you. So, thanks for having me. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.